Well, we've just come off a, a very in-depth study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and as I promised, we will be opening uh, the book of Galatians the first Sunday of March. Uh, I need uh, uh, about a month to, to kind of get things settled and ready. So in the meantime, we are going to turn our attention to various portions of the Bible and uh, this morning, we are in a very important passage. You've just heard it read, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Um, our focus will be a little bit more specific than all of those verses. But uh, I think it's important that um, uh, having been conditioned by the sage of Ecclesiastes not to, uh, not to uh, trust in human wisdom, but rather to be trusting in godly wisdom, we are to do nothing that is of utter futility. In fact, we know that as Christians, everything we do matters, right? And so Paul even says at the beginning of this passage that we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, a uh, familiar terminology, and uh, we want to make sure that we don't and that that's true of us. So without further ado, I want to draw your attention to this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll begin by saying that as far as I know, our American society still places a great deal of value on recommendations. Well, that's why we have things like Yelp and five-star rating system for movies, Rotten Tomatoes, and things like that. We want to know how others, how other people perceive a particular movie or restaurant, and also people how people are perceived. Businesses want recommendations that capture not only the education and qualifications of a potential employee, but have references. What do others have to say about his work? Does he have a good track record? Does he have a record? Has he ever been disciplined or fired? We're the, the same way when we when we look for, I think, a tradesman, a plumber, a good mechanic, can you recommend somebody? References and recommendations were also practiced in the first century. Maybe you didn't know that. The Apostle Paul actually gave a recommendation to the church at Rome for Phoebe. Phoebe was from the, the church of Centria. She was obviously transferring her membership from there to the church of Rome, and she was... Uh, highly praised by the Apostle Paul. He maintains the practice also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. and verses 1 and 2, he says to them, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? That just is a, uh, an example of the fact that recommendations were, were very important. One form of recommendation then and now is a resume, a resume where you have to recommend yourself. Uh, it has references at the very bottom, of course, to validate who you say you are, but the fact remains, in a resume, you're putting, you're putting yourself out there as the best man or woman for the job, right? For most, it's, it's not a time to be brutally honest with yourself, <laughs> But, highly, uh, but highlight rather all the good points and put the best version of yourself out there. Now, I bring this practice up because there is a sense in which we Christians must be more concerned about 
commending our work to God. Huh? Recommend our work to God? What do you mean? We're not applying for a job in heaven. Last I checked, salvation is by grace through faith, not works. Well, what I'm getting at is how's, uh, how is your work, your spiritual work? How is your ministry, your service? Are you godly under pressure? Is your faith worthy to be imitated? Are you a credit to Christians everywhere, or are you an embarrassment? This is not a message on how we can brag to God about how worthy we are to be God's children. Absolutely not. We deserve nothing but hell. He chose us, or he chose to save us, and not on the basis of anything good in us, but according to his good pleasure and will. That's it. What this message is about, and part two is coming soon, is taking an honest look at just how loyal we are in our service to God. More like a self-examination kind of thing. Do we regard his opinion of us as more important than the opinion of family and friends, a boss, someone of the opposite sex, our children? You know, Reformed Christians can be adamant about the fact that we don't deserve heaven, and yet, at the same time, regard how others think about them more than they regard God's opinion of them. Oh, yes. It happens all the time. It is, is it not better to be at peace with God and at odds with the world and even American Christianity than the other way around? And yet, yet the behavior of many in the church betray the reverse thinking all too often. They care too much about how they're Received by men. Now, Paul was a a convict. Apostle Paul. He was a convict. He was an agitator, a constant trouble maker. He was in constant trouble with the law, caused riots in towns that he visited, was run out of them, vehemently disliked by the Jews, and many of his disciples wound up betraying him. Does that sound commendable to the human ear? Most churches today receiving a resume like that for the position of pastor would give it no thought at all, no attention whatsoever. Yet Paul was able to commend himself to God. You can have the greatest reputation with people and grieve God, or you can please God with service that upsets the world and even entire churches. What makes the difference is that you have God's approval and pleasure in any context. That is the most important thing. You could be assured uh, that the way that people perceive you um, could be good or bad, but it doesn't make a difference when it comes to how we're perceived by God. We want God's approval And uh, for that, we need to be obedient to the scriptures. Now, turn with me, if you're not there already, to chapter 6, 2 Corinthians. And I want to be looking with you at verses 8 to 10. They're part of a longer sentence that begins back in verse 1. So, let me read it for you in its simpler form than what you heard this morning. And working together for God, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, giving no cause for offense 
in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarding as deceivers and yet as true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. As you know, Paul wrote this entire epistle to defend his apostleship against teachers who claim to be true apostles but who were really false apostles of Satan. They cleverly won over a small minority of of Corinthians to the lie that Paul was a phony by discrediting aspects of Paul's, Paul's ministry. He's weak in his appearance. In speech, it's contemptible. He preaches the gospel without charge, and so on. Paul eventually answers these accusations, arguing that command, a commanding presence, emotionally charged rhetoric designed to guilt people into accepting his message, and selling the faith, which, by the way, was a very common thing in the first century among those cults that peddled their religion. Paul said all of these are what discredit the faith, not to mention changes the message of the gospel, and creates false converts who trust this gospel. Perhaps the, the, most, the most articulate word from the apostle on his approach to preaching is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He repudiated his, uh, or this first century approach that I just outlined, and he relied squarely on the pure, unadulterated content of the gospel preached, so that if anyone was converted by it, it was the result of God's divine work alone who deserves all the credit. Now, preaching was only one of, one of many aspects of, of Paul's apostleship that was attacked, but regardless of, of what his enemies said about him, or even some of the Corinthians who were duped by them, Paul was not about to change anything about his ministry. Nothing. He didn't need to. He was biblical through and through. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 6 that it must be that way for other true apostles. It must be that way for true pastor elders, for the church planters and missionaries. There is a wider application here to all Christians as well, because all Christians are commissioned to evangelize and to edify the saints, and to minister to each other, to be godly spouses, to be godly parents, to be godly children to their parents, especially in their old age, to have a sterling work ethic, to contend for the faith before the world. Oh yes, Paul says we work together for God. We obey God. We minister at his command and commissioning. And as soon And as we do, we reject secular ways born of human wisdom. If we didn't refuse worldly philosophies or psychology to minister, we'd have no use for God's grace at all. God's grace is enough, you see, for us to accomplish our calling. That's Paul's personal testimony in chapter 12. 
And beyond that, we offend our God if we turn a deaf ear to his sufficient scripture and our backs to our under, uh, our backs to the assistance of the Holy Spirit and instead rely on our own understanding and strength and secular strategies. God is very offended at that. Even if our goal was godly, listen to this very carefully, if our goal was godly, it doesn't justify the means that we use to achieve it. I don't think many Christians realize that. Hear what I'm saying. They think, well, as long as I'm out for the right and godly goal, what difference does it make how I get there? Well, it makes a great difference indeed. Christian parents, for example, should never say, well, I'll do whatever it takes to have obedient children. I want you to think about that for a second. As well-intentioned as that sounds, the means are sure to be unbiblical, and in many cases, especially if having obedient children becomes idolatrous to them. Right? They're obsessed about this. They may become overbearing. They may be manipulative. They might threaten to embarrass their kids if they don't behave or bribe them or worse. Beloved, the ends or the end does not justify the means. Whether we're talking about parenting or pastoring, the point is this. All of us meet out our individual callings in our own stations of life in a way that is godly, biblical, holy, and pleasing to God. Genuine born-again believers in any position of influence, whether it's in the community or in the church or in their home, can fall into unbiblical and even sinful practices. They can nullify the grace of God and they can discredit the faith in God's eyes, even though they may be in step with many churches and the teaching of famous Christian personalities. Remember, a small percentage of believers in Corinth were convinced that Paul was a phony. And of course, they were wrong. So here, this is Paul's bottom line. In verse 4, this is the bottom line. Conduct yourselves in a way that is commendable to God. Honest, reliable, and loyal servants of God serve by the book. They depend on the Holy Spirit, all for the honor of God and for his approval. Don't ignore his spiritual help by turning aside to your own ingenuity, your own logic, your own might, or the latest fads in popular culture, steer clear of unbiblical means. Can you commend yourself to God in all that you do? That's a question of the text. Are you prepared to answer? In your business practices, can you commend yourself to God? In your taxes, in your car, your daily interactions with people, in your mind, when you're alone with your thoughts. Can you commend yourself to God. This principle of commending ourselves, or maybe I should say in conducting ourselves in a commendable way before God, is a constant throughout all areas of our life. You must be prepared to commend your thinking and your behavior to God in all situations, whether tragic or prosperous. Like those mentioned in the last part of verse 4, stretching all the way to Verse 6, let me read that list for you. In much endurance, 
in afflictions, in hardship, in difficulties, in beatings, in imprisonments, in mob attacks, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, and in the power of God. You know, Paul was able to commend his thinking and his behavior to God in all of these situations. Imagine that. And we, we get irritable at loved ones when, when we're sleep-deprived. We run out of patience in an annoying situation. We feel sorry for ourselves when neglected. Nothing commendable there. Now, this impressive list is not the focus this morning. And maybe you're relieved. It was getting too convicting, and he's not even out of the introduction. Well, as you catch your breath, brace yourself and turn your attention to another list in verses 8 to 10, because that proves to be just as convicting. We have before us a list of opposites, antitheses, or paradoxes, however you want to explain it. A paradox is a logical statement that sounds illogical to the ear. It's an effective literary tool when the situation calls for it, and we use it all the time. Maybe you're not even aware of it. We say things like, well, you have to spend money to make money, or less is more. I need to be cruel to be kind, you see. If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. This is the beginning of the end. You get the idea. Paradoxes. Paul mentions nine of them that are true of all of us. And they are contexts in which we are to commend ourselves to God. Now, don't make the mistake that many Christians make thinking that that these constitute our happiness or success or failure or confidence or that somehow they validate whether we're right or wrong in our Christian response. No, none of that. Rather, these are simply contexts in which we can commend our actions to God. Opportunities for us to practice a commendable faith. Think of it that way. So Paul is commending his ministry through context that may be seen from two extreme vantage points. Here's the first one. By glory and dishonor. By glory and dishonor. The word glory has the idea in this particular context of popularity, fame. In John chapter 5, verse 44 Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day, how can you believe when you receive fame from one another and you do not seek the fame that is from the one and only God? Or later in chapter 12, verse 43, speaking of them again, he says they love the fame and approval of men. Now the word dishonor in our verse is the opposite extreme of glory or fame. It means to be unpopular. Paul tells us that our ministry from God is one that we carry out even in these extreme situations. There were times Paul's audience esteemed him highly. You may remember. He was popular with them. In fact, some of them sinfully idolized Paul, if you remember, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he had to address that. That, I think, was somewhat of an isolated instance. Most who respected Paul were balanced about it. 
The Galatians, for example, loved Paul so much they would have even plucked their own eyes out and given them to him, which hints possibly at some eye condition that Paul had, and they empathized with him. The Philippians, too, Paul said, you gave us your very heart. Now, having said that, there were also times when Paul was unpopular with his audience. There were constant enemies who tried to ruin his ministry, especially in the churches of Corinth and Galatia. Here's Paul, working hard for Christ, attracting many disciples and supporters for the ministry, as well as many critics and dissenters. And this is... And this is simply one scenario that this verse implies. This is going to happen. I think the other scenario that this verse implies that's perhaps more to the point of the grammar of this verse is the fickleness that comes with those within the church who esteem Paul for a while and then turned around and stabbed him in the back. Maybe you know how betrayal feels. Some of Paul's closest companions intentionally tried to hurt his ministry. Demas, who was part of his entourage, eventually deserted Paul for the love of the world. And don't forget Alexander the coppersmith, who who caused Paul great harm. The fact fact is that, that God's servants will have bitter enemies, as well as devoted friends, and sometimes the two are one and the same. Paul goes from being hero to public enemy number one in the same church. What Paul is driving at is simply this. Whether he is popular or despised, he will not be moved. His interest is in commending himself to God as a faithful servant. And he does what God expects of him, remembering that he can expect to be treated no better than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Same goes for us. Here's another paradox. By evil report and good report. Paul commends his ministry through both evil reports and good reports. Now what's he getting at here? Well simply this. Throughout his ministry there were times when his audience severely criticized and falsely accused him and times when they commended him. Paul had his fair share of unjust criticism. Not only by those Jews who finally got him arrested, but by many who had been le- who had who he had led to Christ and had become part of local assemblies that he founded. Some of his most vehement critics are in the Church of Corinth. In fact, Paul writes this very epistle to defend his apostleship because a group of Jews who thought they were Christians but were not would follow up would follow up at Corinth after Paul left in order to discredit him and spread their own teaching. Paul would then come and start, uh, would come and and, and start um, or follow up with that um, and, and preach truth. They would then follow up with false teaching that would tear down what he built. He would then write a letter to try and straighten out with the uh, with what the church's doctrine should be they would follow up again and negatively influence their uh, the membership he would turn around in person and then go and put things in order they would swing around again and counter with more error whatever he did they undid and so he would do all over again 
And this sort of cat and mouse game would eventually end with Paul winning, but not without Paul becoming utterly frustrated. I think you can imagine this. We're given a glimpse of it in chapter 12. Paul talks about the thorn in his side, do you remember? Which most likely was a person, I think, possessed by a messenger from Satan, as Paul says, specifically the Corinthian ringleader who led a small but destructive band of false teachers to destroy Paul's work. Paul was so frustrated, agonized over this so much, that he asked God to remove this man from the scene. He prayed three times, which was probably a, a figure of speech for, for many times. The answer was not what Paul was looking for. He said, concerning this, I pled with the Lord three times that he might leave me, verse 8. Now, it wasn't always like this for Paul. At times, he enjoyed a good reputation among the Gentiles. He writes to the Philippians, you received our word, not as a word from men, but a word from God. Now, what this shows, beloved, is that we're, we've, we have no guarantee whatsoever how much slander and how much praise we're going to receive in our ministries. But listen to this. God promises no Christian praise from people, but he does promise persecution. And don't make the mistake that positive contexts are somehow better than the negative ones. Both have the potential to influence negatively. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, noted Bible scholar, argues in his commentary on 2 Corinthians at this point that both the negative things that were said of Paul and the good reports that, that he would have liked to have heard can actually be for Christians and certainly those in positions of leadership in the church, a temptation to act ungodly. Either one can be, an attempt, can be a temptation to act ungodly. On the one hand, no one likes to be falsely accused and can, when his character is maligned, lash out. He can lash out in a manner that is inconsistent with the Lord's behavior. This is why 1 Peter 2.23 highlights the fact that while being reviled, Jesus himself did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but rather he kept entrusting himself to him who judges right, righteously. On the other hand, the desire to hear good reports about yourself from those that are on the receiving end of your ministry, well, that can lead to pride and complacency. It was Paul's understanding that this is why God sent to him a messenger of Satan to buffet him in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 12. He needed to be kept humble and depending upon God. In this case, the negative context actually was more beneficial to Paul. I like the way Hughes puts it, speaking of the Christians. Uh, he says this, Speaking of the Christian, his task is to steer a straight and undeviating course, giving heed only to the word of his one master, regardless of what men may say about him, so long as he is doing that. No evil report, however false, can harm him, and no good report, however true, can distract him. End quote. The bottom line is whether Paul's audience severely criticized and falsely accused him 
or hardly commended him, either way, he will nevertheless he will nevertheless press on and be a faithful servant. Beloved, remember this. We look to the Bible, not to circumstances to affirm our faithfulness. Never to circumstances. Never to the way we are received. We have to look to the Bible. We don't excuse ourselves from being faithful during painful persecution. And neither do we find more reason to be fruitful when praised by people. Both extremes are simply contexts in which we are to commend our faithful ministry to God. God will decide which of the two is more beneficial to us at any given time. Here's another paradox, regarded as deceivers and yet true. It's interesting, to say the least, that a true man of God, someone who is true to the Lord, to his calling, and works diligently to please Christ in his service, can be regarded as a deceiver. Now, this is, I think, a true sign of the times. You know when we're living in the last days when unbelievers regard the clear message of a biblical text preached as simply someone's opinion. Or, if not that, then one's own interpretation at best and outright deception at worst. In Paul's case, there was much talk circulating in Corinth that he was a deceiver for preaching the gospel. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in carelessness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And again in chapter 11, verse 31, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Paul knew his message was genuine, and others knew it too. Peter even comments about Paul's preaching. In 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, he called it scripture. He said, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. Beloved, whether you preach or teach or love your wife as Christ loved the church or submissive to your husband or believe in disciplining your kids or that marriage is between one man and one woman or that God created them, male and female, that you should be a truth-teller, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, that Jesus is Lord, you will be maligned. We live in a day when public conscience calls good evil and evil good, pure and simple. Reality is, this is true for everyone who remains true to the Scripture, but what a context in which to minister and commend our faithful ministry to God. The next one is this, as unknown yet well-known. As unknown yet well-known. Here's another context that presents itself to those who faithfully serve Christ. In this particular setting, 
we see that the Corinthian church was overtaken by a small minority of false teachers that Paul called the super-apostles. He was being sarcastic, of course. They were doing a good job of discrediting him in the eyes of many in the church, to the point where some, some Corinthians were, were not taking Paul's apostleship seriously. To have his apostle, his apostolic authority discredited was really the same as being marginalized, unknown. He might as well have never been there, according to them. It's not easy to minister to people who don't take you seriously. Now, in chapter 10, verse 2 and verse 10, Paul warns those few who support this false claim to change their ways or else he'll rebuke them severely when he comes. Further on, in verse 13 of chapter 10, Paul then appeals to the conscience of the Corinthians. And in so doing, he mentions the word fanatical or insane that people use to describe him. He turns the tables, though. He says, they think by what I say and do, I'm insane. But I say and do according to God's will. So if people think me to be insane because of that, well, then I am insane for God, insanely passionate for God's will. And you think me to be of sound mind, in complete control of what I'm doing, it is for your sake. Now, this context may, may have been a, a, a tough one, I think, in which to minister, but it was one that was by no means hopeless. Paul worked hard to defend his apostleship, to prevent the church at Corinth from falling into the hands of false teachers and, and being undone. But it, it mattered very little, you see, to Paul, what those false teachers said about him. It very, mattered very little. Or what anyone, for that matter, in the church may have said about him. He says this way back in, cha- in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Verses 3 and 4, he said, But to me, it is a very small thing that I am examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself yet. I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is God. So Paul always measured his motives, his behavior, his actions, not by how well he was received or by how badly he was received, not by whether he offended people or that he excited them. No, he measured all by the word of God. That's what he measured, all his, his thoughts, his motives, his behavior. You see, what mattered to most to Paul and what kept him ministering in such a hostile environment as well as he would in a prosperous environment is the fact that he was quite well known to God. And in the end, that's really the most important thing. The Lord set Paul aside in his mother's womb, called him and sent him out. That's Romans 1. He told the Corinthian church earlier that he was fully known by God. He said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in heaven face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been known by God. And this idea of being known by God is what he used to encourage young Timothy, in fact, 
A firm foundation of God stands, he said, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. This is such a great declaration because it confirms God's loving relationship that, that he has with his own. The knowing here is not, by the way, merely intellectual, as if God only was cognizant of his people. No, it's a knowing that carries the same connotation as it does back in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam knew his wife and she conceived. God had a love relationship with each person that belongs to him before the foundation of the world. We read in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord loves those who are his. And Jesus states in John 10.14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. It's such a tremendous encouragement to be assured that when we're disregarded, passed off as unimportant, as nobodies, by people in this world, and even by people in the church that we minister to, God loves us. And we are known by him. He has a relationship with us. Romans 8 is perhaps the greatest testimony of how God's love for us instills confidence in us. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. So once again, beloved, these are extreme contexts in which we commend ourselves to God, our faithful service. So, can you commend yourself to God in the areas of your life? Do not determine that on the basis of how you are received by the world or the church. Don't make that mistake. Rather, look to Scripture and find out if your service to Christ and to others measures up. If it does, you know that you can and you know that you have God's approval. Assessing our ministry this way, well, it might seem counterintuitive because we cannot sense God's approval. We can only confirm it by Scripture whereas the approval or disapproval of men appeals to our senses and is immediate and tangible. But we live by faith, right? We live by faith in what God says, not by sight. Right? Let me repeat then. What makes the difference is that you have God's approval and and pleasure in any context. And you can be assured of it Not by the way people perceive you, but whether you are obedient to Scripture. And we will pick up where we left off in this wonderful passage next time. Father, thank you for this word, which has been preserved for us down through the centuries, that it might wind up in our hands. It's timely word from the Apostle Paul, and we pray that we we will heed it, take it seriously, let it minister to our souls, especially in this day and age, this post-Christian era where there are so many enemies of the cross. We pray that we would not we would not look to the things we see or experience. We would not find our validation for ministry and how we are received. We will we will not look to uh, to contexts and situations to confirm 
that our responses are correct and right, but rather we would look only to Scripture for that. We would measure ourselves by your word and see where we are lacking that we might make up the lack. And in these varied and extreme situations in which we minister, we would see them only and simply as contexts in which we can commend ourselves to God. We pray that that will be true of us today and this week and on until you come for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.